So the question is, how might you encourage someone who's experiencing blessings to um, to praise God? Well, the most if they're praising God, like I sent a text to a friend of mine, rejoice with us, the Lord's granted us conception. You know, like awesome. If somebody's woohoo, um, you could potentially encourage them to uh, hey, thanks for sharing. You there's sort of. Passive ways, Zach. If you share some good thing, yeah, it's right thing. Thank you for sharing God's blessing to me in your life. I'll be praising Him on your behalf. Like, there's one way of sort of leading by example. But you flat out, if you know someone well enough and you've been watching, like, man, God's really been good to you. I, I'd encourage you to, to to thank Him for it to make that known. I mean, depending on how you, well you know somebody, you can be that bold, you know. Um, so, what? You can be that bold with children. Um, you can be that bold with children. Now, what I'll, my mother used to say um, in, for getting us ready for prayers at night, we should pray and, and give thanks as though we wouldn't get to keep anything we weren't thankful for. <laughs> well, no, and that, and that biblical pattern of God redeems, God restores, God delivers, God helps, and we, he does it to establish praise in our lips. If we haven't had a pattern of praising him, with what right should we expect or ask him to give the blessing? So there's a sense in which that this is the way it's supposed to work. We get the blessing, he gets the glory. So make sure we don't, aren't stingy with the glory. Um, so, so yeah. Yes, Bridget. Kind of along those lines, um, with God disciplining us when maybe we don't have a good attitude, mm-hmm. um, I'm just thinking of like the Israelites and his discipline for them in the wilderness. Um, I'm just wondering, is there like a direct correlation? Like if we're not praising him that he might, how does that all work? Take things away? Or even like if we're in a a season of trial, but maybe we're not even like going to him like we should, that he would maybe prolong that. I don't know. Let's go to Hebrews 12. And this actually can serve as a good bridge into the, uh, the sickness portion. Um, Verse 4 and following, Hebrews 12. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you've endured. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness." The moment all discipline seems painful rather than unpleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So there are numerous ways God can discipline, but be sure those who are his sons and daughters, he does discipline. Now, whether it's instantly, Romans 2 talks about the kindness and patience of God being meant to lead us to repentance. It may be that God is in kindness and in his patience, giving us some time to sort of figure out for ourselves. It may be that we, we step off the path and he's right there to, to spank, 
to spank us, as it were. Uh, he, he knows best. And whether or not that's going to be sometimes through smashing our plans and dreams, sometimes it's be to withholding things we want. And sickness, we know, is an option as one of the ways he might discipline um, just from Hebrews, I mean, not Hebrews, from 1 Corinthians 11. So I don't know when or how. I know he consistently does discipline his children in, in various ways. So Paul has a thorn in his flesh, which I don't think is actually physical illness. I, I tend to think it's the opposition at the church at Corinth. Uh, literally, it's a spear for his body, an angel from Satan. And since he's identified the leaders of the church at Corinth, the faction opposed to him as satanic, even Satan himself praised himself as an angel of light. He's already intimated he knows what team they're playing for. It's entirely possible that Paul basically prayed, Lord, would you take away, would you remove, would you silence these wicked leaders? And God said, no, I'm going to glorify myself through. And there it's not even discipline as much as it's a parenting. I, God is guarding Paul from pride. So sometimes God may bring difficulty in our life, not as a direct discipline, but as, as a training um, I remember reading some John Owen, the Lord saying, I know my, this child of mine, and if, if, this, if I were to let these things happen, their faith might crumble. Therefore, I'm, I'm going to let this trial into their life to keep their attention. Um, does that, I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but that's my, So there, he has numerous means and methods and ways. We know he does, and he does consistently. And I know that I never feel more nervous than when I think I deserve discipline, and I don't see it happening. Because... If you don't participate in discipline, whom all did, then you're not legitimate sons and daughters. Like, so um, I, I never tend to feel more loved than when God is is treating me as a son like this. Um, but no, there's, there's a lot, and and like I was saying in the message, we want to guard against either error. Just being consumed with the fact that every illness is a result of sin or a lack of faith, that certainly is unhealthy. But we can so go the other way that we don't ever even want to consider the possibility. And James is telling us what, I mean, look at, go back to James 5. We'll look at this next week. Why should we confess our sins to each other and pray for one another? That we might be healed. There's at least some implied connection between unconfessed sin and healing. In some instances in the body. That seems to me undeniable. Um, and so we could be obsessed with it or we could just ignore it. And I think the, the right thing to do is it's one of the possibilities. It's one of the things that could be going on. There's many things that could be going on. Uh, this illness could be for the glory of God. This could be Paul, the Lord, guarding me from sin. I haven't sinned. He's humbling me and reminding me of my weakness so that I could not become proud. Or it could be directly... Um, like Ananias and Sapphira, I lied to God and his people and discipline came quickly and suddenly. Um, Serena, needs a microphone. Could suffering also be for somebody else's benefit? Ooh, ooh. Second Corinthians 1, let's go there. I'm not pretending to exhaust the reasons the Bible gives why God might bring suffering into our life. Um, Second Corinthians chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Why does God do that? So that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It may be that God has brought affliction in, that he might comfort us and thus equip us to comfort others in his name who are in affliction. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it could be, and I tend to think God's doing 100,000 things at once. Um, I, I don't ever expect to see all that he is doing. Liz. I, I don't know how to word this very well, but I'm going to try. Um, so in the case of um, sickness and illness that is like a family genetic issue like cancer if you have the gene you know for it or you're pre pre exposed to it how would you encourage someone that is struggling with that or is just already you know exposed to that i guess and then also um i do know that they say like well babies are born with deformities because of sin or or they were sick because of sin and i've i've heard things like that but how would you encourage someone who maybe is a believer mm or even not a believer, if they are going through something like that and they just don't understand, right. like, why them or whatever. Okay. How do we deal with genetic illness? So, like, in my family, um, MS runs strong, right? My mother, her brother, her mother, all three of my sisters have MS. So there's the very real possibility it could pass through me to my many daughters, it tends to show up much more commonly with, it's also possible I could develop it. If I do, it'll likely be in my forties. I'm in my forties. So hasn't last time I got a scan, um, that the giveaway sign for MS is lesions on the brain. Um, and there weren't any lesions on the brain, so that's good, but I could still develop MS. God, I, I'll echo what Bennett said to me. I find far greater comfort in knowing that the things in my life have a purpose and a reason. Um, if you're in Second Corinthians, turn to chapter um, 4. Um, I take great comfort in... I, as much as for some people, it's, it's... Okay, so the difficulty in saying God is sovereign over sickness and disease, it's kind of frightening. And we might temp be tempted to think... It'd be better if God had nothing to do with sickness and disease and difficulty. He just did nice things. But then our sickness and our disease and our suffering would be meaningless. If it's not from his hand, if it's not part of his plan, it is meaningless. And then why do my sisters have a mess? There's no meaning. There's no purpose to it. There's no good. Look at what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 through 18. For we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Paul is bold enough to say his light momentary affliction, and we know he's minimizing here. If you read through a little later in this book, you'll see all the things he's suffered. Paul has suffered more greatly than most. Um, this light momentary affliction, it's doing something, and what it's doing is preparing something. 
there is a correspondence between Paul's suffering now and the glory Paul will experience later. The one is preparing the other. That, that's the language. So it's doing something. It has meaning and it has result and consequence. And that can only happen if God is sovereign. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. So one of the things I try to comfort people with in their suffering is you may not find out this side of eternity why this was brought into your life, why the Lord allowed this. But let me assure you, God means it for your ultimate good and for your future glory. I I find more comfort in that than this is meaningless, but perhaps God can turn it for good. And your point with children... um, well, no, I know we've, we've had two miscarriages, right, Serena? And I, I remember with, with at least one of them asking the Lord, and this, this may sound morbid, but like, Lord, are you disciplining me? For? God killed David and Bathsheba's child because of David's sin. Look that in the face, Lord, are you trying to get my attention for something? And now I, don't, I didn't hang out there for months, but I spent an afternoon asking that question. And I, and I think we shouldn't be afraid to ask that. We also shouldn't just morbidly, I know, I know it isn't. One of the prayers I believe God always answers is, show me my sin. Um, the Lord does not respond, well, if you have to ask, I can't tell you. Um, and the Psalms are littered with prayers. Lord, search my heart. Show me, show me any hidden way in me. So when, when, you, when you pray that, I fully believe the Lord is... If, if, if that's the case, the Lord will make that clear. What is the point of disciplining to instruct someone if you don't let them know that's what you're doing when they ask? So, so I remember praying that, Lord, could it be that this is discipline for something I've done? Um, I didn't hang out there for months, but I, I think it was worth looking at. Um, but I certainly don't believe it's some secret thing that should be haunting you. Like maybe I ask the Lord. And if his spirit doesn't bring to mind something clear, move on, would be my, would be my, my counsel, Liz. Um, so on the one hand, it can be scary to ask, because what if the answer is perhaps? <laughs> um, but I also don't think it should be something hanging over our heads, haunting us forever. Um, in David's case, it was really clear. David knew why the child died. Nathan told him. Um, and so... If, if that takes place, something like that takes place, and if you're willing to ask that question, I think you'll know. Anyone want to echo on Lucas? First Peter 5, verse 1. Let's take a look. First Peter 5, verse 1. Hold on, I'm in Second Peter here. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Oh, you, you linked him with the glory to be revealed, didn't you? Yeah, okay. Yeah. And that, that reminds me of another point that Vody Bauckham likes to make. Um, our Savior, the Son of God, who perfectly pleased the Father, 
was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, what makes us think we're getting off the hook? (laughs) Did God love his son perfectly? Yes, he did. Did God apportion much suffering for his son? Yes, he did. Okay. Um, Then on what basis would we expect to avoid that? So the Lord meters out seasons of challenge, seasons of, of refreshment, seasons of rest and work, seasons of suffering and joy. That's, that's the portion of man. Um, that's the testimony of Ecclesiastes. Okay. Yes, Linda. And then we'll finally get to faith healers. Okay, so yeah. are there different either words or maybe context when the word heal is used because in first Peter two, when it talks about by his wounds, you have been healed, but we generally associate that with our spiritual healing because he took on our sins. And so is all, is the word for heal always the same? It is here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the same in English. We can talk about being healed spiritually. We can talk about being healed physically. The context is going to determine the case. It's not like there's a word for spiritual healing and a different word for physical healing. Just like what the ESV translated as saved can mean delivered, rescued, preserved, sin forgiven. Same word, sozo. It, it's, the, it's, the, it's the Greek sozo word family. Um, the context, so here the context. Raise him up. Undeny- I mean, there are... That's not true. There are some commentators who want to take this exclusively of spiritual healing. Exclusively. It's talking about the resurrection on the last day. It's talking about spiritually being weak. The word for sick can be used to speak of spiritual weakness, but in every other instance in the New Testament where it is, some other word is added to make it clear that's what we're talking about. To those weak in faith, right? So, so Paul adds in faith to make it clear we're talking about spiritual weakness. So when he just says, is anyone among you sick without qualifier and they get raised up, we're talking about someone on, in a bed who's going to be walking around after. I, I, think it's, I think it's a dodge to try to make this purely spiritual and purely resurrection. Um, although there are people who take that. I mean, there are, there are some commentators who go that way. I, I don't think so. Okay, um, so because, like in my Bible, it says, is any one of you in trouble? Back in James. Which verse? 5.13. Yeah. So it said, it doesn't say the suffering, it says in trouble. Well, so, how do they translate that same word in 10? Um, patience in the face of suffering. Because it's the same word in 10. Okay. So I'm fine with trouble if you want to say in 10 as an example of trouble and patience. Fair enough. It, I mean, when you're dealing with a, with a word, you're not, you rarely get one-to-one exact fits. So when you look up it in a lexicon, you'll get three or four options, you know. Um, and so fair enough. Trouble, suffering, affliction, they're all, they're all valid glosses for, for the word. Um, but my point is just, it's the same, the, the linguistic connection is that it's just what he's mentioned in 10. And so he's coming back to that. Um, yeah. Bennett? 
I know the world that I have to only ask one question, but I do have to ask this other question. Um, in the book of Job, he had no disabilities, but then God made a deal with the devil, and Job got everything taken away, and he got all sorts of terrible things done to him. But he never repented against God, and he never did it. So I feel kind of like the same way about Job. In the beginning of Job, I feel that way. So I say to myself, "I, if you can do it, I can do it too." Okay. Very good. Very good. No, no, absolutely not. All sickness is a result of sin. Um, in Job's case. God allowed Satan to strike him with sickness to demonstrate his righteousness. I want to show you Job off. I want to prove the, this is Peter's point, that the tested genuineness of your faith might be found to praise and glory and honor through revelation of Jesus Christ. So and there's another reason why God might bring trouble in, to, to, to highlight to the, the audience that might include Satan, the genuineness of your faith. Um, Okay, I want to. I want to get to. Oh, Maria, you had a question. Go. No, no, microphone. Okay. So uh, the last ten minutes, I've trying to figure out how to to ask this question okay. and make you know so people can understand it. Sickness and illness and ac- accidents are always something that I have struggled with, and I believe that totally believe that God is sovereign, sovereign and has mm-hmm. power over every single thing. Yep. But when some things happen to good people, and I do believe that we can be reprimanded with sickness and illness through sin, but I also have blamed Adam and Eve for causing all the havoc, which <laughs> allows our actions and mm. our for sickness for sickness and things to happen. Yeah. Am I wrong in that? Yes and no. Depends what you mean by blame. If you, so, so uh, let, me, let me back up. There are two views of how we inherit or how we uh, receive our sinful nature from Adam. One is that it's through genetic descent. Adam passed on to his kids, passed on to their kids, passed on to their kids, passed on to their kids. On to their kids. That's one possibility. What I tend to think the Bible teaches is actually federal or legal in the same way that our governor, our president can bind the United States of America into a treaty so that what he signs, we've signed. I think Adam did that. The reason I think that is that's certainly how Christ gives us his righteousness. And in Romans five twelve and following, um, I, this is a long roundabout answer. I'll, I'll get to your question in a moment. So, so what I'm saying is I believe Adam's our representative, and I believe he is a perfect representative of us. If what we mean by blaming him is I wouldn't have done what Adam did, why did that idiot do it? I think we're dead wrong. I think in the same way, if you're reading the story of Israel in the wilderness and those knuckleheads, why are they needing quail? These are written to instruct us lest we be tempted by the same things. So I do not think God chose a poor representative for us. I don't think God chose a loser, meaning... I would suggest that if you and I had been in Adam's place, we would have done the same thing only quicker. Um, so if by blame you mean place at his feet the responsibility, certainly Paul does. 
through one man, sin came into the world, and by sin, death, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam, we're guilty, um, and we're really guilty, and it's not a, a, a miscarriage of justice that we're guilty in Adam. So is he responsible for bringing sin into the world? Yes. Would I have done any better? No. I, I don't. So that, that's, that's the, no, no. You push back if you don't agree. That's fine. My answer to your question is yes. Let me let me explain what I mean. Um, this is this is heavy, and I'll take ten minutes or so to try to answer this. But I spend about fifty-five minutes dealing with this exact question. In the we did a series on sovereignty, election, predestination, and the very first message is dealing with the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. I try to deal with this. I believe the world we exist in. God works his plans sovereignly through the uncoerced real decisions of people. So what the by I don't know how that happens. I'm not claiming to understand how, but that that happens, I see again and again in scripture so that Peter can say to the Jews, "You put to death the author of life and did everything according to God's predetermined plan and purpose." And he's blaming them and he's saying nothing happened but what God determined and planned so it's it's not a fun exercise to look at innocent suffering to look at um great suffering but if god planned and brought to pass the greatest and most innocent suffering in the universe the death of jesus on the cross he's more innocent than a baby um he's more innocent than, than anything if god planned that there is certainly a sense in which God, this is Romans 8.28, God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Ephesians 1.11, he is working all things according to his plan. Joseph speaks of his brothers selling him into slavery. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So that means I have to look in the face, God planned the Holocaust. And evil men did it and are guilty about it. And I gotta say both. God planned 9-11, and evil hijackers did 9-11. I got to be able to speak out of both ways. Amos, does calamity not befall a city unless the Lord has done it? 2001, 9-11, calamity befell New York. So I, I don't, as hard as it is to look at these things, and I want to be careful because you don't want to be callous or trite or um, heartless, the, the Bible doesn't shy away from God's sovereignty over terrible things like the the uh, captivity to Babylon, you read through read through Lamentations. One of the things that that Jeremiah is lamenting, and he's crying out to God against, is the siege of Jerusalem is so bad that parents are eating their children. It's right in there. And that's got to be one of the most horrific things I've ever heard in my life. It's also predicted in Deuteronomy as one of the curses of covenant unfaithfulness. 
And Jeremiah is essentially pulling his hair out, broken over this. And yet he's, Lord, this is what you said would come to pass if your people were rebelled against you. Um, So we ought not to take it lightly, but no, I, I would, I have to believe, and I do believe that all of these things are part of God's ultimate plan and purpose, even as that does not excuse or let off the hook of responsibility wicked people for doing them. You ask a very hard question, Mary. But no, no. But I don't think we do any favors by shying away or blinking. I, I think the Bible does speak to this. Jake wants to add something to this. This is sort of a uh, <clears throat> this is a thought experiment experiment that most of you will be faith will most of you who have been around this question a lot will already recognize, but if the answer is not yes to both, on the one hand, if it's just, yes, God did it, and that's it, then you take away the sinful guilt of these people. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's not their fault. These horrible, awful people weren't really sinful. They were just caught, you know, it was part of a bigger plan. They had no say in the matter. That expunges them of their sin. We can't do that. On the other hand, if we make it all about these people and say God had no role in it, well, I guess God didn't have the power to stop this evil thing from happening. Evil men did it, and God couldn't stop it. He wasn't sovereign over it, so it just happened. You see what I'm saying? So when you, t- it's just a thought experiment, but when you tilt it either way, you can see the problems it creates theologically. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so I'll just read to you. Hold on. I'll just read to you the prayer of uh, the early church in Acts 4 after uh, the, the, uh, the apostles were beaten by the leaders. And listen how they credit God and they blame man in one prayer. For truly in this city, there were gathered against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan and predestined to take place. So if that's true of the greatest evil that ever took place in history, crucifixion of the Son of God, then as much as... It's tough. If, if that holds true for the worst evil ever, then why can't it hold true for lesser evils? Um, and, and God is God, and he gets to be God. And I don't understand. But again and again in Scripture, um, the Bible doesn't shy away from these things. I'm just finishing up an audible book by John Piper called Providence, which is it's it's his it's probably his greatest thing I've read of his. It's long, but he he looks in these dark nooks and crannies, and the Bible doesn't shy away from these types of things. Let me let me give you one example in First Samuel. Go to First Samuel. This is this I, I really recommend to you Piper's book Providence. It the first half, the second half I'm enjoying better than the first, but it's just excellent overall. The number of little things God takes responsibility for that'll surprise you. Um, 1 Samuel 2, Eli has two worthless sons. It's a bad deal when the Bible says you're a worthless son. Um, that ain't good. Verse 12 of chapter 2, now, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. And they did not know the Lord. And then you read about what they would do. They would, when people would come to make sacrifices, they'd take a portion of the meat that was supposed to be for God and eat it themselves. And they'd force the women to come to sleep with them. 
And Eli, in verse 22, was very old. He kept hearing all that the sons were doing to Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the peoples. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Why didn't Eli's sons repent? And all of a sudden, God shows up and claims some purpose here. And you're like, whoa, he is way bigger than we tend to think. And that's not for a second to let these sons off the hook. But you mean God has a purpose even in temple prostitution? Apparently. And so one of the things Piper's book does is just highlights the hundreds of little places where all of a sudden the sovereignty of God shows up in very strange places and ways. And you realize the Bible does not shy away from, it does not apologize for God being sovereign and in awful, in the true meaning, full of awe, awful ways. Ways to just make your jaw drop and go, okay, you're God and I'm not. And never in a way that removes our responsibility or allows us to excuse our sin or to blame it on him. And I don't know how that all works out. I'm just insisting the Bible insists it does. Um, so you ask a huge question. I'll, I can send you a link to the—I spend an entire, like, hour dealing with this issue alone, trying to deal with this issue alone. Um, that's my 10-minute version because um, we haven't got the faith healers yet. And I want—where's King, Kingery? Is he sitting in the back or he's— Take off. Okay. Well, I know Kingery's going to want me to talk about faith healers at some point. So, okay. Um, any other questions? We've got 15 minutes. No, you can talk to me afterwards, Bennett. You can talk. No, no, this is fine. Talk to me afterwards. You said, you said the last one was your last one. And I got ground to cover. I'll wait around. We'll talk afterwards. So, um, the reason why I point out faith healers in this passage is... Um, Two reasons. Has anyone had, I know you have, and who's had experience with, with sort of faith healing services, churches? That ins- and here I'm not, talk- I'm not talking about people who believe healings can happen. I absolutely believe healings can, and if the Lord wills them to, do happen. I don't believe there's any reason why God couldn't heal my mother, anyone. Um, it could happen. There are some people who believe that miraculous healings are exclusively from the age of the apostles. I, I don't see any particular reason why that has to be the case. Yet at the same time, I I live with no expectation that I will encounter a miraculous healing. God is free to do what he wants, and I'm not aware of any promises of absolute healing, nor am I aware of any places God has constrained himself that he can't. So so I believe he can, but I have, like I said, have no expectation that he does. And frequently in churches that, that promote this, they will grab on to passages like this. And like I said in the sermon, if you just read it at prima face value, it looks like, at first reading, an unconditional promise. And he will be saved, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, what's the usual escape clause when healings don't work in these church services? What's, what? You didn't have enough faith, which is one of the... No, that's the classic answer. So um, when a friend of mine's mother went forward and she wasn't healed at one of these churches, 
um, she was told she didn't have enough faith, which is why I want to highlight here. My response, if I were with that person, would be like, fair enough. You offer the prayer of faith that'll raise her up. Because it's the elders who are praying here. So if you're going to argue lack of faith, then take that to Benny, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, or any of those people and say, look, you offer up the prayer of faith. Um, it, it does, it does, it, it's got to be crushing to people to not only have to deal with their own sickness and infirmity, but then to be told it's their fault. And the only reason they're not relieved of it is they can't muster up enough faith. I mean, that's just got to be awful. Um, that's just got to be absolutely um, <laughs> devastating. And this types of things will happen. Like, you, you read these stories every now and then about, like, parents driving around with the baby that died in their trunk. Like, that's faith. It's faith in, an, I think, a, not a promise of God. But if you're doing that, trust me, you're believing something. Don't, don't tell me you lack faith. It's the question is, are you trusting in something that's true? Just like the, the, the guys, the hijackers for 9-11, that is some serious faith. Can anyone doubt the 9-11 hijackers believed what they believed? The question is, did they believe what's true? I, I don't believe they did, but they clearly had faith. Um, so the, the what? No, they had works. Yeah, they did. Oh, yeah, they did. They had zeal, but not according to knowledge. Just like Israel. So, so questions or thoughts about that with like the whole faith healing movement and, and that type of thing? Anybody? Bridget. So um, this is more of like a personal story, but um, someone who used to disciple me in my old church, which was not charismatic, yeah. um, but she was in a grocery store once, man in front of her um, started having a heart attack or something, stopped breathing. She put her hand on him, prayed in the name of Jesus that he would be healed. He started breathing. She just left. So I don't, I don't know. It was just an interesting story. She didn't broadcast this. It was kind of one of those things that came up in Bible study once, and she said, this did happen to me. I, I don't know. Like, I mean, obviously that could be coincidence, but we, you would think that God's hand would be. I don't know. I just thought no, that was an well, interesting. That's, that's, a, that's a side topic. What do we do with reports of miraculous events we didn't witness? My general response is, because I, I hear this periodically, but someone will tell me um, something. If what they're saying could fit within what I see in the Bible, and if what they're saying caused them to praise God, fight their sin, love him more, I say, cool. Like, now the woman told you and you're telling me, what you said absolutely could have happened. I don't know if it happened or not, but if you're telling me this woman's faith was encouraged, whatever it is, I'm, I'm for it. And no, because someone will come to me and they'll tell me, I heard this story about somebody there in Africa and this happened. What do you think? Now, if it's, if it's contrary to scripture, I, I think not, you know. Um, and uh, some of the, the stories I hear about dreams and visions in the Middle East concern me because they, theologically they're off. Um, and so uh, some of the stories of dreams and visions sound like they could work biblically. Not, I don't know if they're happening or not, but like just as the angel appeared to Cornelius and told him this good man, you need to, some of the dreams and visions, like you need to find the missionaries, you need to talk to them. Okay, at least that's fitting into a pattern I recognize, so maybe that did happen. Others, um, you know, 
there's no gospel message. It's just Jesus loving and hugging them. And I'm thinking until you, until you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, the wrath of God, like I got all sorts of questions about how Jesus can love on you apart from faith and repentance. Um, so I don't know, but inevitably I hear these stories and my response is as long as it's not contrary to scripture. Cool. And I don't wig out about it. Um, but the, 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 the reason why that is, is I can't, if God has done a miracle, the people who saw it can glorify God. I, I can't do a whole lot three degrees out. You know what I mean? Um, so if, if, if something happened to you and encouraged your faith, I'm a fan. Yeah, and awesome. I'm just thinking personally, like, yeah, if you're in a circumstance like that and and you have faith and you pray, you know, obviously if it's not yeah. God's will, it won't happen. But like, yeah. should we, just according to this woman's testimony, because she was someone I respected yeah. and that it's not like that would happen every time, but sure. should you pray in faith, believing that could happen? Sure. Some stranger that you sure. pray for. Okay. <laughs> no, no. I mean, no. Could. I mean, she wasn't doing CPR as well as praying. It was she just prayed and it just in that instant. And I think people around her were kind of like, whoa, but she didn't want to make a big spectacle. So she just yeah. left. I don't know. She yeah. doesn't want to make her about her, basically. No, like, no. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, we live in a there's a balancing act again of like, OK, we don't we see something. And I see you, Trinity. Get the mic over to Trinity while I pontificate for a moment. Um, and uh we rightly, I think, want to avoid the excesses of charismania um, and some of the some of the excesses that can happen there. But we don't want to so far move the other way. We should never lose our sense of wonder and awe at the world. We live in a crazy world, a crazy world. We're hurtling through space at like forty thousand miles an hour to a ball of dirt. I mean, the sun. These plants are taking sunlight and turning it into sugar. It's just crazy stuff happening all around us and we're used to it and we're like okay like one of the one of the if i could recommend a book to help uh restore your sense of awe and wonder uh notes from the tilt the world you read that right and it's wonderful in highlighting the sense of awe and wonder and just the crazy world we live in notes i got two copies of it in my office if you want to borrow one it's a nice devotional read it's not super heavy by nd wilson Son of the bad man from Moscow. And it's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Trinity. I was just going to point out that I think it's also good and true to recognize that God designed our bodies to heal themselves. Yes. So like we get fevers in order to kill off all of the bad stuff. We get tired so our body can have the time to rest and rejuvenate. And so it's like we have that part and that in of itself is a miracle. Yeah. Like we could get sick and our body could do nothing and we could just die, but God designed us so that didn't happen. In fact, almost all of medicine is, not all of it, surgical medicine is not, but almost all non-surgical medicine is really just manipulating the body so the body would heal itself. It's, it, we don't have medicines that heal. We have medicines that enable your body to heal, right? I mean, aside from surgery or cutting stuff out and sewing stuff up, that's probably the one place where we really are. Yeah, antibiotics don't work on your immune system. So most of medicine, I, I forget who I was just reading. Somebody, was it Lewis? I think it was C.S. Lewis. I, I've been listening to him at night. was just talking about how really most of medicine is about manipulating the body so the body can do the crazy, miraculous stuff it does in healing. 
Um, give your body some zinc so the body can heal. Give your, you know, get this stuff out. Um, no, our, it's, our bodies are amazing. Amazingly intricate and complicated. Okay, we're at time, folks. Thank you very much. I'll stick around for a few minutes, Bennett, and anyone else who's got questions. Thank you very much. Godspeed, God bless, and good day.